Well, good morning. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Luke. If you're using the Pew Bible, we'll be on page 867. 867. We've been in the book of Luke this spring, winter, spring, and we are sort of looking at the question as Jesus encounters all of these different situations as to what would compel someone to follow Jesus and to look at the text and look at the way Jesus encounters these individuals or circumstances and and perhaps see Jesus in a new and more compelling light than we had seen him before. Maybe we have never seen him in this light before. And so as we come to our text this morning, this is the transfiguration and it's somewhat famous or more familiar because it's in every single gospel and we get a true revealing of of who Jesus is sort of a uh, we've seen him do some pretty miraculous things at this point but we really see the the veil so to speak come down Um, and what we really behold here on this mountain is true power and that's what we're going to see this morning because that is ultimately what we all need in order to have our sins forgiven we need somebody who can do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. So with that eye, I want us to hear God's word this morning from chapter 9, beginning in verse 28 and uh, concluding there in verse 36. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Found in the book of Luke. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent And told no one in those days anything what they had seen. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we again pray this morning that you would open our eyes and our ears. That we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And we pray for our hearts that you would soften them. That you would make them and turn them into good soil. Such as the seed goes out into good soil and produces a fruit. That we too would produce that fruit as we hear your word and as we take it in. That we would leave here changed people. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. If you're on Facebook, you know that there's this feature that um, will come up on your morning feed. That'll say, on this day, six years ago. And it's probably you with a picture of yourself eating frozen yogurt somewhere. And, you know, it's... Great. It got like 76 likes, so Facebook feels like they need to throw this up and show it to you and remind you when you used to really live uh, six years ago. Um, last week, however, uh, I got my this. I got my you know um, 
on this day four years ago. And there was a picture of me, and I totally forgot about this picture, um, basically kind of curled up on this miniature couch, um, <clears throat> laying on my back, and I'm in the lobby of a doctor's office. And it reminded me of this period in my life, and some of you all know I have a bad back, where this particular point in time, it was the worst episode I ever had. And it it went out on like a Thursday afternoon, went to sleep, woke up, could not get out of bed for the next five days. Um, 34 years old, okay? These things aren't supposed to happen to 34-year-olds, and what I'm told. Um, Also, to make matters worse, I was supposed to, to, to... preach at a high school retreat that weekend. And so the anxiety of really realizing that I can't even get out of this bed to walk, let alone drive the two and a half hours to this retreat center to be their speaker. And then I've got to be the guy to call them literally two or three hours before these kids show up. And just, it was just, it was awful because I couldn't do a thing. Um, Had to get four students to come carry me and put me in the car to go drive to the doctor's office to have uh, some work done in order to relieve my pain. Um, And um, I I start here because, not looking for sympathy at all, all of us have these periods in our lives and these things, whether it's a bad knee or a bad back or just something happens. Ultimately, as age progresses, we learn more about these things. But we all have these situations and encounters in our life where we realize we are just not who we think we are. Uh, We're not as, the the finiteness of our bodies is just that. Um, We are weak. We are, um, you know, smaller than we'd like to imagine. And what really sort of honed in for me at this point in time in my life as I thought about it is just the lack of power that I truly have at any moment's notice. You know, I think that I'm so capable, um, and then just like that, out. But what ultimately happens, you know, especially for a 34-year-old, is that you do get better, and you kind of begin to live life again under the weight of your own strength, and you begin to forget pretty quickly um, what you, you know, what you experience in those times. That's why we're thankful for things like Facebook to remind us that we aren't, you know, infinite beings, that we aren't powerful. But I start here to sort of ask the question, what's the source of power for you in your life? What do you look to for power? Maybe is a better way to get at that. And, 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 and to be more specific, why we would go to this power, what we look to for power in our lives, what do you look to or look for to help you change? I think these are questions that, in a strange way, I hope we see, ultimately come to the surface as we look at our text this morning, that what can really, what really has the power in this world to change us? Because in stark contrast to the story that I was being reminded of four years ago, we have this story on this mountain where Jesus shows us something of himself that he has shown, hasn't shown of himself up to this point. It's kind of strange. It's kind of weird. But ultimately what it is, is it is everlasting power. Because of who Jesus is, who is the Son of God? 
And so this morning, what I want us to see is we see him transfigured on this mountain as Peter, James, and John did. I want us to see that power, but I want us to see how that power shows us who God truly is. I want us to see who actually gets to say so, right? Who gets to say who Jesus is, who God is. And then I want us to see ultimately why we need Jesus. Why has Luke waited to this point in time in his, in his gospel to put this story here? And I think we'll see why that's the case as we look to the question of why we need Jesus. So let's look at those three things. The first, who, who is Jesus there in your, uh, in your outline? So much of the transfiguration of Jesus has to do with what happens just before this story back in verse 18. And this is uh, one of the famous stories of the Gospels where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says specifically to Peter, who do you say that I am, right? Who, who do people say that I am? And then to Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter answers, you are the Christ. And in Luke's account, you are the Christ of God. Then in verse 21, Jesus begins to tell his disciples for the first time about what that means and that he's going to have to suffer and be rejected and killed, but he'll be resurrected as well. And the disciples are confused as to what he means by these things. And actually, a little bit before this passage, back in chapter 8, when the disciples got on a boat with Jesus to head across the sea, we didn't look at this story, but you're maybe familiar with it. As they're on the sea, they come across a storm. And they, they fear for their lives, and Jesus was asleep in the hull of the ship. And they, they wake him up, or he wakes up, and, and he calms the storm with his words. And if you remember the reaction, they were marveled and afraid, and they asked this question, Who is this? Right, these aren't just sort of you know, new friends of Jesus or um, you know, strangers that just sort of hop, hopped on the boat to catch a ride you know, to the other side. These are the people that have been with Jesus the longest. And they're asking this question, who is this? And maybe that's a question that you're asking this morning. Or maybe that's a question you've asked in your life before. Certainly, though, this question is at the heart of our series this spring, I would say. But it is ultimately at the heart of Christianity itself. Who is this? Who is this? And on this mountain we see. And the answer to that question is simple. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's who he is. And we see this in several ways in the transfiguration itself. First and most obvious is the transfiguration that we see in verse 29. If you look at your text, it says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. To say that Jesus is transfigured is to literally say what that word means, that to become more beautiful and elevated. Um, I don't know if you experienced this at a wedding. When I was younger, I, I definitely did, and still, too, still sometimes now. But I, there, there's a sense when you're at a wedding that the bride is just so you know, beautiful and elevated, if you will, that there's a, a fear to kind of even be around her. You know, I, I, don't know, I just felt like I was going to mess things up or you know, she's just too pretty for me to even kind of... I just will kind of avoid the bride because I didn't want to really be, I don't know, if you had that experience, maybe that's just me. But that's what I tend to think of in the situation where there's just sort of this otherness, right, at the reception uh, as, there, as, as there should be at a wedding and, and the bride being that, that one. But here, for, the, for Jesus to be transfigured is to sort of just talk about this otherness about him. This beauty and this elevatedness that they are experiencing is what that word means. In the other accounts, Mark uses words such as radiant and intensely white to describe what he sees. And Matthew uses the word of the language, shone like the sun. 
to get at this. But why is Jesus more beautiful and elevated through this transfiguration? Is it because a spotlight from heaven, you know, is, is coming down on his face? No. Is he reflecting some sort of light from some other source, maybe? An answer to that is no. The reason that he is transfigured, is elevated and beautiful in this scene is because of the place that the light is coming from. And that is himself. Because he is God. Phil Bryken notes this, that the disciples, as they were looking at this, they were seeing the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began. The eternal splendor of his divine being. Think about that for a second. Think about that for a lifetime, right? What the disciples were getting glimpses of is everything that existed and continues to exist for all eternity. That's who Jesus is. So what's most significant is that light is not shining down on him, nor is light reflecting from him. Jesus is the source of this light. And just so we know that's true, Tim Keller says it this way. Light does not come down on Jesus, but shines from him. Okay, we can all breathe, right? Okay, good. Why? Because Jesus is God. The second way that we see this in the transfiguration, that Jesus is God, is this cloud motif. Throughout scripture, when the cloud would show up, as it did at the foot of Sinai after the exodus, it brought fear and trepidation. Why? Because it was the presence of God himself. And when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 24, that glory is manifested in the form of a bright, shining cloud that looks like, quote, fire, white hot. It's just the descriptive word there. The cloud alone would have been enough to confirm God's presence and blessing. And even so here on this mountain in Luke 9. And any who entered it or even touched the mountain, if you remember, at the foot of Sinai, would surely die. But here, here, the cloud speaks and affirms Jesus as what? The Son of God, the Chosen One. Here, the cloud and the radiance of white coming from Jesus are one. Uniquely and intimately linked. Here, Death does not become of those who would enter God's presence because God's mediator is there. Later in the New Testament, we are told in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, and we should be familiar with this to some extent. But the writer writes, he, Jesus, is what? The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of his nature. So why do I labor there This first point, the transfiguration tells us what we can never confuse Jesus of being. We can't confuse him as being just some great teacher anymore. We can't confuse him as to being just another prophet or maybe even a really good one at that anymore. He's no longer just a good man and somebody that we should just try to, you know, shape and form our lives after. Jesus is the Son of God himself, the incarnate God, the second member of the Trinity. And what's clear to us this morning is that Jesus isn't leaving his identity up for grabs on this mountain. You know, relative truth isn't a thing for Jesus. 
He's giving you a glimpse of what is ultimately true about who he is. As C.S. Lewis so famously put in his book, Mere Christianity, and I'm paraphrasing here, you cannot say that Jesus was just a good teacher or a good role model. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or who he claims to be, which is God himself. Say that he is a lunatic or that he is a liar, but don't say that he is a good teacher for he has not left that option open for us. So who do you say Jesus is this morning? Is he a good teacher? Is he God? Is he, is, is he someone that you just call on in times of need? I'm certainly guilty of that. One of the greatest questions, though, that I have received as a, from, a, from a pastor friend of mine that I keep coming back to to answer that question is to really ask, what is it that I am saying no to in my life for the sake of following this Jesus? And here's what I mean, and I'll speak personally this morning. Ryan, it is easy to say that you follow Jesus. It's easy to say that you're a Christian, that you go to church. But what have you ever given up? What have you ever said no to? Because Jesus is king. To show that he truly does have rights and claims over my life. And see, we in, in our tradition, we love to speak of the freedom that the grace of the gospel gives us. Right? Freedom to go and do things. But that freedom is also the freedom to say no at times. Even to good things. Because you follow a king. That to me has always been a better way to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Than saying, well, I go to church. I read my Bible. And I pray. All these are great things and things that Christians should do for sure. But if Jesus calls me to deny myself. To take up my cross and to follow him, which he has just gotten done calling his disciples to in the text before this. How am I denying myself? What crosses am I selectively choosing to take up? How am I following him? Where am I saying no to things in this world that don't ultimately benefit me or give me pleasure, advance my agenda or make my name great? And that's a question directed at myself at this point. Where am I saying no to the things because Jesus is Lord? Where am I handing authority over in my life so that others may speak into it and call me to things that otherwise I would not call myself to? And that is a question you can bet has been on my mind and that I've been asking myself lately. Over these past several weeks and certainly months with reflection and prayer and listening, I can honestly say that my no because of who Jesus is has been greatly overshadowed by my yes for what that might mean for Ryan. And I think that's a great question for us to ask ourselves. And one of the things that happens when we begin to see this as the Spirit works, of course, as we dig around in there, right, and as we listen to others as they speak into our lives... We learn and we see, for example, and I'll just use myself, like I love the approval of men. I don't know if that's you this morning. That is a mountain that I worship at. I love the approval of men and I worship there. And what I need this morning, though, and what I need every day is an encounter with the one true God on another mountain. 
And maybe that's you too this morning. I don't know. But I need his power and his brilliance and his beauty and his glory to overwhelm me and to show me and remind me of who he is. And by consequence, who I am not. And that for whatever agenda that I would set for myself, there could be no better agenda for me than to take up his and to follow him at whatever cost. What mountain have you been worshiping on this week? It's a great question for us at this point. What ways do you need to see Jesus then more beautiful and elevated this morning? That's a question that I want to take with me this morning. What are you saying no to in our lives because Jesus is God and that following him is the greatest treasure we could ever secure for ourselves in this world? Long first point. This is who Jesus is. He's God. And there's no getting around that. There's, there's no questioning about that at this point. Well, who gets to say so? And I love that point. If I don't say so myself, right? And just hear, I don't know, some random eight-year-old will just say, well, who says so? And this brings us to the two people standing in glory with Jesus. If you're like me, you might be wondering why, of all people, do we find Moses and Elijah on this mountain with Jesus as he is transfigured. What is this all about? Well, back then, the Old Testament, and you might read this as well in the New Testament, was often referred to as what? The law and the prophets. Right? So we didn't call it the Old Testament. It's called the law and the prophets. And in other words, in these two figures that we see here, sort of house the Old Testament an icon, if you will. It is a symbolic affirmation Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, all that they spoke of and pointed to finds its fulfillment in Jesus himself. So at this point, if we're going to ask the question, who gets to say so? The answer is clear. The Bible. God's word gets to say so. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament itself is here glorified in bodily form, mind you. To say Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we spoke of and pointed to. It's one story. It's not two stories. And what we were about, they say, and what we were doing and saying has landed and found its fruition, its fullness, its completeness in Jesus himself. But it's not just the Old Testament that gets to say this. It's also the New Testament as well. There's a lot of discussion around who Jesus just or why Jesus just brought Peter, James and John up on this mountain to show this them this incredible moment. And while we can discuss many reasons, it's my personal belief that one of the reasons that Jesus does this is because they their his inner circle, the inner circle of his ministry and certainly the inner circle that would go forward in major ways to start his church that would be leaders for the others, that they will need personal experiences like this one to carry on their work in establishing the church after Jesus ascends. Of all other events, the transfiguration is one that Peter references, even apart from the resurrection. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 to 18, he says this, When we received honor and glory from God the Father, And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. I wonder what that would have meant to them years later after Jesus ascended. And after things got really tough. 
Notice that at the end of our story in verse 9, when they're coming down the mountain, they are told to tell no one. See, Jesus was showing and giving himself to them in a very unique way. <clears throat> and I think we need to visit, need a visit from Jesus in a very unique way as well this morning. We need to see dead men in glory standing with Jesus. We need to see transfiguration, the transfiguration so as to speak of the real existence of the quote other world and the eternal kingdom as David Gooding writes. That Christ had contact with both worlds simultaneously. What an encouragement for Peter, James and John and what an encouragement for us this morning. That at no time is Jesus not or is Jesus not God or bridging these two worlds for us. They exist, y'all. They are real. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to acknowledge those worlds, that they exist, and that one day there will be, one, there will be no separation of the two, is sort of a picture of what we're getting here in this text. But as much as that's great to ponder and the encouragement that it is, none of that matters or is really believable if we don't get our sources right. Who gets to make these claims? Who has authority to say who is God and who isn't? And the only answer to that question is God himself. That's who says so. And that's what Moses and Elijah are doing on this mountain. It is the whole of Scripture, friends, the law and the prophets in the New Testament, who testifies to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God himself. And it is Scripture alone who gets to say so. Not man, not even the church, mind you. Even as preservers of this word. But God's very own word gets to say this. So if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets of all that Moses and Elijah stood for, what is that fulfillment? What is it supposed to look like? And this gets to our third point, why we need Jesus. All that Moses and Elijah spoke of will look like, all that it will look like, and, 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 and where it finds its fulfillment is in the death of Jesus for sinners. And we see that as Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about his, quote, departure there in verse 31. You want to underline that word. It's very important. Verse 31, the departure. To talk about someone's departure is to talk about their death. So if you get in a conversation at lunch today and somebody asks you about your departure, you'll know what they're talking about. And maybe like Jesus, you might think, wow, thanks, Moses and Elijah, for this encouraging word. Um, you show up here and you're going well, you to you talk to me about my death. Okay, great. That seems encouraging. Why are you doing this, right? <laughs> Why are they doing that? Well, listen, they, Moses and Elijah, and all of us for that matter, but we'll get there in a second. They're doing this because their own salvation depends on it. Their own salvation depends on the perfect and finished work of Jesus. As great as these two are. And the significance of the word departure, why it is unique to Luke, is that he uses the Greek word for exodus here. 
And this is significant for several reasons. Talking with Moses on this mountain, it's no surprise that Luke wants us to understand Jesus' departure in connection with Moses' departure, his exodus, if you will. That is, where Moses freed Israel from slavery out of death, I mean, out of Egypt, Jesus' death will set forth an exodus of a different kind. Jesus' death will serve as a final, a more powerful exodus where he won't be freeing God's people from a political and economical slavery, but a spiritual slavery, a slavery to sin and death. This is what Jesus' departure, his death, will accomplish. This is what they're talking to him about. This is what all their hopes and dreams are tied up in. This is what the purpose of their entire life was about. This is what they were pointing to. That one day, God would send his anointed to go and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we place our faith in that. And here it is, and here's the proclamation of that. And we ultimately see that, not just from the Old Testament and New Testament, as I pointed out in the previous point, but ultimately in the affirmation of God himself. That here is, in one sense, the baptism of Jesus to begin heading to the cross to do what he came to do for all of us. And like Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John, we all need Jesus to do this for us. Or there will be no exodus. There will be no exodus from sin and death. There will be no rescue, no hope. There will be no reconciliation or forgiveness. There will be no fellowship with God or basking in his presence for all eternity. Jesus must leave this mountain and turn his full attention to another mountain, another hill, Calgary. So that sinners like us can sing without doubt and with uncertainty or with, and without uncertainty for thousands of years to come. That there truly is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, what? Lose all their guilty stains. We can sing that today because of this. This is why we need Jesus. We need his real power that truly frees us. We need the exodus that only he can provide as God himself. We need fulfillment in all that the law and the prophets spoke of. And we need true, everlasting power. And here it is. In Jesus himself. If I come back briefly uh, to my back. (laughs) What I was trying to, to get at, the physical problems in our lives that we experience from one shape or another. Those are gentle reminders, aren't they? Are they not? Of a power that you really need and don't have. Not a power to heal physically, but a power to change who you are spiritually from the inside. And so the question I'll leave you all with as we end here is, what are you looking to for such power in your life? It's the question we started with. Where do you go for change What do you think truly has the power to change you? It's interesting to think about where we look for power in our lives today and how, right? The power that we seek, though, comes through such fleeting and finite things. 
watching guys play football in college and seeing them get abnormally huge to play in the NFL. Only by their 40s cannot walk without a limp or a cane or with some use of painkillers. That kind of power and strength is fleeting. There's the power of money, of course, of looks and beauty that we try to wield and knowledge. But there is no finality there. It is fleeting. The power of a moment even that we try to capture the experience destined to linger, but then it what? It, it fades. And the best that we can do is come up with some type of technology or social media to turn it back up briefly. There's the simple joys and the love and the laughter that move us forward, but they don't last. Even sustenance such as food and water only lasts so long until it has to be repeated. Nothing in this life gives us everlasting power, but we keep looking for it. And we look everywhere. We turn over every stone and we're sure it's right around the next corner and we place our trust in it when we find it, don't we? What the transfiguration reveals is that Jesus is himself everlasting power. We don't entrust ourselves to us We don't entrust ourselves to the things of this world that we think will give us power. We entrust ourselves to him. He is the man that we worship on this mountain. Where are you looking for such power in your life? What has the power to ultimately change you this morning? And do you see that here in Jesus? Radiant, shining And transfigured. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful and precious word to us. We thank you that we have everlasting power in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he would give his life to secure for us the, the ultimate and final exodus For sinners who are enslaved to sin and death. But we're thankful that we can stand here this morning and sing and say no more. No more. Because of the power and the mighty acts of your son, your chosen one, Jesus. We pray that he would receive the glory this morning. That he would receive our worship. We ask this all in his name. Amen.